You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Welcome to T-Minus Career Notes. I'm Alice Carruth, producer of the T-Minus Space Daily Podcast. Today is July 4th, 2023, Independence Day in the US, so we have a special program for you. Career Notes explores the pathways of some of the most influential leaders in aerospace. Our guest for today broke through the glass ceiling to the stars. Colonel Eileen Collins was a test pilot for the US Air Force, a NASA astronaut, and the first American woman to command a space mission. Here is her story in her own words. I have a very clear memory of reading a article on the Gemini astronauts in a magazine. I was sitting at my desk. I was in fourth grade and I saw pictures of these men very cool guys that were uh, dressed up in their flight suits and their pressure suits. And the story was about what are astronauts. And I'm a little kid thinking, this is exactly what I want to do. Um, unfortunately, there were no women astronauts back in those days, but I'm, I'm a little kid. And I thought, well, heck, I'll be a lady astronaut. That's what I'm going to do. This was filed away in the back of my mind. But Years later, when I was in college, you know, I was still reading about pilots and I really, there wasn't a whole lot written in books on the space program back in those days. So I remembered that those astronauts were pilots, they were test pilots, they were engineers. And I was trying to pattern my my dream job after what they had done. And it was 1976 when the Air Force first selected women to go to pilot training. And then in 1978, NASA selected the first women to be space shuttle astronauts. And I was in college at the time, and i uh, that's when it became real to me, that this is something I can actually do. And I buckled down and I got serious about doing the things I needed to do to, to make that my life. I was an explorer, and my family lived on the outskirts of our town, Elmira, New York, but we lived in government-subsidized housing. We lived very close to other families and there were other children in the neighborhood, but I just happened to be really of the kids I hung around with, I was the oldest. And since we lived near the edge of town, there was a lot of land to explore. So we, I would gather up the neighborhood kids and we would climb trees, we would make forts. Well, we did some stuff that we shouldn't have done. I mean, back in those days, parents didn't know what their kids were doing. I mean, it's a different world today. I would never let my kids out of my sight. But I was crawling all over the neighborhood. And we also had our enemies. There were some kids on the other side of this government subsidized housing that didn't like us. And we had some confrontations with them that were a little bit nasty. But you got to remember, I was seven through 12 years old when all of this was going on. And I I learned to be, I want to say, I think I learned some leadership skills there. I learned how to defend my little sister against the bad girls on the other side of town. And I learned that there were actually mean people and there were dangers in the world. My mother would take us to the library. And the books that I brought home were were mostly in the realm of science. It was a little bit harder to find books on airplanes. But as I got older, I did find the flying section of the library. And, I, you know, I was probably middle school, high school. And some of the books that I remember reading back in the early 
years were, one of them was uh, The Stars at Noon about Jackie Cochran, who started the Women Air Force Service Pilots. And I would still recommend that book today. She came from nothing and she became uh, very rich and famous. And she was the first woman to go faster than the speed of sound. So that, that was one book that really inspired me. I read a book called God is My Co-Pilot, and it's a story about the American pilots that flew in China during World War II. If you remember, China was our ally back in World War II. And then from there, I found more and more books on flying, whether it was fiction or nonfiction, and I really got into history. And I started reading a lot about the uh, military side of flying through the wars over the years. So I grew up in a small town, but it's a site of Harris Hill. And Harris Hill is the glider field, and the National Soaring Museum is located there. And this is gliders. Uh, so the tow planes take the gliders up and release them, and the gliders would, would fly. I was a kid. I, uh, my dad took us to the airport. We'd watch them take off and land. My dad also took us to the commercial airport, where we'd watch the airliners take off and land. I want to say it was cheap entertainment. And we'd get the root beer uh, over at the uh, A&W root beer stand. And that's what they were known for back in those days. And we'd go out and watch the airplanes fly. And that was a really special time for my family to do things like that. And I uh, decided I wanted to be a pilot. So the Air Force decided in 1976 to allow women to become military pilots. And it was a test program. Now I was not, I was still uh, young and in college when the first uh, groups went through. So they selected 10 women. It was a very competitive program. It was nationwide. Those 10 women went to pilot training in Phoenix, Arizona. And I heard about this in the news. I started following it and I said, well, this is what I want to do. My senior year in college, I'm in ROTC, which is the Reserve Officer Training Corps, and I'm on track to be commissioned as a second lieutenant. And the job they had set up for me, back then we called it Strategic Air Command, and I was going to be a computer systems design engineer. I was going to work in missile targeting. I mean, that's what the Air Force had me set up for. This is back during the Cold War, and it was 1978. Well, this test program then opened up to women just graduating from college. So I became eligible. In previous, you had to be on active duty. So now the younger women, I was 21 years old, were now eligible. So my professor of aerospace studies sent my name in and there were about a hundred women from around the country and eight of us were selected. This to me was a massive dream come true. I mean, this was a huge turning point in my life when I was selected for this program. And of the eight of us, four went to Arizona where the other women had trained and four of us went to Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma, and we were the first four women to ever go through pilot training there. The times that I spent at Vance as one of the first women to ever train there, I, I wrote a whole chapter on it in my book because there were so many uh, interesting stories that happened and how the men accepted us and some that didn't accept us. But it was to me just a dream come true because now I've, I'm 21 years old and I'm flying jets. And I went solo in jet aircraft the T-37 and T-38 at the age of 21. It's a huge amount of responsibility to give to somebody at that age. Um, at that point, I was a college graduate, but I was living my dream. 
And I'm not going to say it was easy because I was studying constantly because not only did I want to get my wings, did I want to become a pilot, but I was part of a test program and I wanted other women to have the same opportunity as me. And if we had failed, then those other women, uh, they would have shut down the program and the women younger than me wouldn't have had the opportunity. So we were doing it for ourselves as well as other women. I uh, was first put in leadership position back in the Air Force. I found that I was a little bit of an autocrat. I think that, you know, maybe I was trying to do too much as, as a, as a quote, leader. But part of it was I knew people were watching me because I was a woman in a man's world. And I thought that I needed to be more decisive and more hands-on. Turned out that didn't work. I actually had people pull me aside and say, you know, Eileen, maybe you don't need to Tell me all that, that you're telling me. I think, you know, it's okay to let me make my own mistakes. That happened to me a couple times, and I started thinking, okay, I'm going to listen to what they're saying. And I think as the years went by, I became less autocratic, meaning less throwing out my ideas and recommendations, telling people what to do. And I became more of a listening-type leader. I was there to provide confidence to the people that are working for me. And through my, not just my words, but through my actions and the way I carry myself and the way I look people in the eye and the way I listen to them. And my decision-making skills were needed when there was conflict. And I had to learn to let people do their job, let them make their own decisions, let them have their own authority over what they're doing, and they will be more interested and they'll be happier in their job and they will be more productive. If there is a conflict somewhere in an office or somewhere between you know, some of the groups that work for you, I encourage them to come to me and I'll help them resolve the conflict. And so I found that later in my career, the skills I needed were to be a good listener, to be humble. So my people were willing to come to me. I didn't want to be intimidating them. Sometimes I think if you're like, one of the few women or even the only woman in charge in your office, you feel pressure to get out there and perform. You really just need to be there and provide confidence. That's what mothers do and that's what teachers do. Like my mom, she was a great mom, but she made mistakes. So I would think about what my mom do that I liked and didn't like. And, you know, in the sense of being a strong woman, not trying to be a guy, but trying to just be who you are but yet being a strong woman. And, and I found that the guys really, the, the men that worked for me really liked the leadership style of, I'm there, I'm in touch with my management, I can resolve problems. And please come to me because I don't wanna be, I will never intimidate people. I'll never say to somebody, oh, you should know that. You know, what are you asking me that for? You should know that. I, I mean, I know people that do that. And I think that's a weak leadership style. So I think that's the type of leader I became towards the end of my career. And I wish I had known that when I was younger. So I'm very procedural. So the biggest adversity to me was making mistakes. And I would just crucify myself when I would make mistakes. And this was something that I had to get under control. And I think I learned this through uh, doing simulations in the space shuttle program. 
We would train our crews under a lot of stress. And if the crews were doing great, I say, you need to make it harder because I want to see how my crew handles their mistakes. Well, we developed a four-step process of dealing with mistakes. And so very procedural. So you make a mistake, this can be terrible, right? Especially if you're flying in space, it could mean the loss of the mission, but it could even mean loss of lives. So we developed a four-step process of dealing with mistakes. Number one, you admit your mistake to yourself or to whoever needs to know. Number two, you fix it. Number three, you eventually do something to prevent that mistake from happening again to you or someone else. And then the fourth is you move on. And I think that move on is very important. I wrote the book because I wanted young people to learn from lessons I learned mistakes I made throughout my life, but also the excitement and how wonderful it was in my careers in the military and at NASA as an astronaut. And I wanted to document that portion of history of the space shuttle program. So from a human point of view, so people would be able to read it someday and remember, you know, what was it like to be a space shuttle astronaut. That's it for T-Miners for July 4th, 2023. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead of the rapidly changing space industry. This episode was mixed by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound designed by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Calf. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Alice Carruth. Thanks for listening. Listener.